2: And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to be talking about skyrocketing suicide. Who's to blame? Is it antidepressants, psychiatrists or other doctors, psychiatric hospitals, parents, society, the media, terrorists, or ourselves? today we're going to be looking at one particular tragic story of richard matthew Burney who was admitted voluntarily to a psychiatric hospital told the staff he was suicidal and then was somehow allowed to leave the hospital with no one noticing and he followed through on what he was trying to tell everyone he needed help with by hanging himself from a nearby tree my guest today our uh, Matthew's sister, Denise Bernie Fine, she is the founder of a new organization uh, stimulated by the tragedy that occurred to her brother, it's called Break the Silence, and renowned suicide attorney, Skip Sim- Simpson. But before I go to my guests, I want to say a bit about uh, who's to blame, and particularly in regard to antidepressants. There's been a lot of controversy from time to time, including recently in the media, about the FDA setting uh, black box warnings, meaning warnings to physicians, Um, really it's uh, (laughs) CYA warnings covering themselves um, in regard to warning physicians not to prescribe antidepressants to um, children, well, it used to be children up to 18. That was their first black box warning that occurred a couple of years ago. And now more recently, they extended the warning to patients up until 24. So, in other words, use a lot of caution in prescribing uh, antidepressants to people under, well, under 25, um, because the studies have shown that um, antidepressants can cause people to commit suicide. Well, <laughs> you know, this is all misplaced. Uh, there, there's been controversy in regard to this issue on all sides. Some people thinking that that wasn't strict enough, that there should be a warning on for all ages that no antidepressants should be prescribed for anyone. Well, that's ridiculous because, in fact, one of the symptoms of depression, uh, major depression, is being suicidal. That is one of the potential s- symptoms. And if, in fact, a serious depression was left untreated, that is where many more people would end up in actually completing suicides. So that is not the solution. The problem is not the antidepressants themselves, but rather how they are administered and by whom. And, for example, many antidepressants these days are being administered by family practice physicians or internists, people who have not gone to psychiatric residencies and studied psychiatry. Um, you know, I don't know what they think that people do, like myself, who uh, go to these residencies. Not that we only study medication. We study psychotherapy, different forms of psychotherapy, and how the mind works, etc., etc. But certainly administering psychiatric medication is one of the things that we spend three to four years learning. So, the idea that um, when uh, family physicians uh, talk to a couple of drug reps and get a couple of you know lectures in medical school years before, uh, that somehow that makes them feel uh, that it's appropriate for them to administer antidepressants is just not right, just like I as an MD could administer uh, high blood pressure medications, but I don't. I send people with high blood pressure problems or suspected problems to, to internists or family physicians or cardiologists, um, specialists in that field. Similarly, uh, too many psychiatrists are also giving out too many prescriptions for antidepressants without giving them the treatment that goes along with it antidepressants just like any medication any psychiatric medication in any case are just band-aids they are incredibly helpful useful life-saving in fact but you really um, use them best by letting them keep the patient uh, help the patient with their symptoms while the patient is getting long-term psychotherapy so these antidepressants, for example, are great band-aids to keep the patient from killing themselves uh, and from suffering other consequences of depression, but um, the real treatment is to get to the underlying problems that cause the person to be depressed in the first place, which is only arrived at by intensive psychotherapy. So psychiatrists, some psychiatrists, are also to blame those who um, have been seeing patients for uh, medication management, you know, brief visits that can range from 15 minutes to ha- half an hour on the average, um, and seeing them once a month to, to regulate their medication. Well, whether it's a, a family practitioner or a psychiatrist who is doing that, you are uh, taking a big risk because... People, especially people who are just being started on any medication, need very close supervision. Now, when I was a psychiatric resident at NYU Bellevue, which was an incredible place to be a resident, I, I feel very fortunate. Um, we were told then that, that was, you know, that was before there were the newer classes of antidepressants, the SSRIs that are involved in the current. Controversy, but even then, when we were talking about tricyclic antidepressants, um, it was well known it was taught as a basic uh, tenet that um, when you give a patient who is depressed a psychiatric medication, they will during a brief window of time feel mobilized by the antidepressant out of their uh, sort of apathetic kind of depression mobilized enough if they have suicidal thoughts to actually now take action and follow their plan to commit suicide this is not a new thing this has been known or should have been known um, for years and years and um, the problem is what's new what's changed isn't even it's not even the fact that there are newer antidepressants because quite frankly there are a lot of studies that show that the old ones work just as well What has changed is the um, perspective, the the landscape of the medical field, the psychiatric and medical field where um, insurance companies are not um, paying psychiatrists to, they prefer the, the companies that have managed care, prefer to pay social workers and psychologists and less expensive therapists to do the psychotherapy if there is even any to be done which generally doesn't even happen but if there's going to be any it's done by people who charge less for their services who have less education and they save the more expensive psychiatric treatment for shorter visits to only monitor medication well I have personally seen numerous cases mainly in my uh, when I wear my hat as a forensic psychiatrist where this does not work where there have been people who have died, uh, who have committed suicide, who have died in other tragic ways because this plan of having a psychiatrist see someone briefly for medication management with or without someone else seeing the person for therapy and not really communicating very well with the psychiatrist is just a, a recipe for disaster. And it is really the whole system that has to change. It's not about putting more black boxes about what age you should be when you get an antidepressant. So um, this is something that I obviously feel very strongly about. And, um, and you know, all of medicine to some degree is going downhill largely because of the insurance industry not compensating doctors, whatever their specialty, for um the appropriate amount of time that we need to spend with patients and um you know that that doesn't that doesn't um uh, indemnify the doctors who choose to to do that however because i feel strongly that more doctors should be uh holding the line and refusing to do this I personally do, will not see a patient just for medication if someone calls and wants to see me because they want their you know they want they want their monthly prescription renewed I just say no I say that if you if you need a prescription if you're having psychological problems whether it's depression or anything else that requires a prescription to help you with your symptoms then you need to get at the underlying causes for these symptoms by being in psychotherapy. So, um I I I just think that this is something that is really um tragic that um that, you know, the the accent is on the wrong syllable. The, the problem is not the antidepressants, but rather how the system has evolved um, in terms of not really giving patients the care, the personal one-on-one care that they require, and particularly when it has to do with medications, it should be a psychiatrist administering that care. And um, sometimes people, you know, there's a whole continuum of depression from garden variety sadness, to uh, major depression, you know, which can include psychotic elements like hearing voices telling you to commit suicide, or it can also include manic depressive illness, and sometimes um, people need medication for it, sometimes they need hospitalization for it, and for in all cases they need psychotherapy for it. So let's, let me introduce my guest, I'll get off my soapbox and um, introduce my guest to talk about this one particular story, uh, that I think exemplifies a lot of these things, a lot of what's wrong and what is causing suicide to skyrocket. So, um, again, the sister of the, uh, Man who did commit suicide while he was in a hospital, which brings up a whole other uh, level of of problems. His name was Richard Matthew Burney, and um, his sister is Denise Burney Fine, and again, she's the founder of Break the Silence. Welcome to the show.
3: Thank you very much, Dr. Carroll. First and foremost, I want to thank you for reaching out to me so quickly after the May 8th national launch of my nonprofit organization, Break the Silence. It is people and professionals like you that really can help to shine a light on these issues and affect change, so I want to thank you again.
2: You're welcome. And uh, Skip Simpson, who is a Texas attorney who has been nationally recognized and received more awards than we actually have time to go into, but one of the things that he is nationally recognized for is his expertise in suicide and also in um, cases that have to do with psychiatric and psychological malpractice. And it's interesting, Skip, you, you, you were involved in so many other things, such as uh, being a, a, special prosecuted, a special prosecutor investigating public integrity issues in the military, which, um, you know, that, of course, is becoming more and more uh, uh, a topic these days. And uh, it's interesting that you have limited or, or specialized more in, in the psychiatric and psychological malpractice area because um, that's obviously a blossoming area, too, and, and particularly in regard to suicide. So when we come back, I, both of you can uh, tell us about this story and, and your connection to each other through it, and uh, we'll explore some of these issues that really need to be changed. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, and we're talking today about skyrocketing suicide and who's to blame.
4: The Internet's premier talk radio station, voiceamerica.com.
5: Every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel.
1: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking about skyrocketing suicide, who's to blame, with my guest, Denise Bernie fine and um, Skip Simpson, Denise Bernie fine is the founder of Break the Silence, and Skip Simpson is a renowned uh, attorney in Texas, particularly specializing in suicide and other psychiatric and psychological malpractice issues. Um, Before we go on to the story of R. Matthew Burney, I I just would like you to um, each comment on my um, commentary that I made at the beginning in regard to how... In, in regard to your experiences of it. Um, Dr. Skip,
4: do you Dr. Start? This, yeah. is, this is Skip. and uh, I w- told you off the air uh, that uh, I would put you up for Surgeon General uh, <laughs> because you were 100% on the money uh, all the way with everything that you just said. And I, I see a lot of primary care physicians who uh, are getting in deep trouble uh, because they're prescribing these kinds of medications. So I don't want to r- reiterate all that except that you were 100% on the money.
3: And uh, I concur as well. Um, you know, I, I just wonder where the FDA picks these age brackets to make the cutoffs at, you know, 18, 24, 26 and a half, 33 and a third. At what age does someone not become vulnerable to these drugs? My brother was drug and alcohol free. He was a dual-degreed Johns Hopkins graduate with an, uh, an MBA in finance. He was brilliant, and he was uh, philanthropic, and he was drug and alcohol free. And his system was as pure as my three-year-olds. And in the matter of three months, he was put on a psychopharmacological cocktail. That not only do we know what one one drug's impact was on his psyche, but the combination thereof, and he specifically went out to the meadows in Wickenburg, Arizona, for the purpose of detoxing off these drugs, and four
2: days later he was dead.
3: Well, so
2: now, let's start back a little bit, um, and, and yes, drug cocktails are. Um, an unfortunate byproduct if someone is um, seeing a patient so infrequently and for so little time you know really what you're supposed to do is start someone on one drug and you monitor them closely meaning at least once a week and you see what impact that drug at that dose has and you gradually increase it um, or if you need to to you know do things more quickly because of suicidal impulses well then you would generally hospitalize the person but 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 this um cocktail, you know, is also a phenomenon that's becoming uh, increasingly popular and and uh, increasingly hazardous and it's because people, you know, doctors throw everything at the patient because they know they're not going to see them for another month. But could we, y- your brother was 37 years old when he committed suicide and could you just give us a little bit more of a background before we start at, at Wickenberg? You know, what kinds of things do you think were bothering him and why was he put on the drug cocktail by a at- was that by a psychiatrist? Well, yes. If, if you if you had told me
3: and if you had told my brother three years ago to this day that he would have taken his own life or that I'd be sitting here as a survivor of suicide, uh, we both would have told you that you were crazy. You know, my brother loved life. My brother embraced life. In fact, at the age of 37, he was realizing his mortality and stopped riding his motorcycle and wasn't out scuba diving as much. I mean, he was realizing, you know, that there is a fragility in life and um, about life. And so he really, you know, he was uh, just loved life, and and, um, he was doing exceptionally well. He never had a depression um, before in his life, and this all came about after a breakup, after a long-term relationship. Um, He was doing fine immediately thereafter, but then, you know, the regrets set in, and um he just started to question you know at 37 he was i guess hitting what we would consider maybe a midlife crisis you know i'm 37 i'm not married and i lost this relationship that was important to me and he was a businessman and and you know there's just a lot of things um there were some health issues in my family as well that were bothering him with my parents and my my parents are aging and i think everything just kind of came at him all at once and he hit an isolated depression around labor day of 2004 and he reached out to his local doctor who who we adore i mean he's a wonderful man and a, a wonderful diagnostician um but he was prescribed uh, an antidepressant and you know again my brother's biochemistry was exceptionally pure and, um, you know, what, what? one of my issues with a lot of these doctors are is that, you know, when you start taking some of these medications, they say to you, you know, you have to work through the side effects. You have to, you know, if you're jittery or anxious or whatever, work through them, work through them, or we have to raise the dose. My belief, because um, I have taken some antidepressants in the past, um, is that, you know, if it's not making you feel good, you listen to your body, and you say to your doctor, you know, I don't like how it's making me feel. Can we try something else? But my brother was new at this. I mean, he never had any health issues. He had never broken a leg. he I don't even think, honest to God, he ever had a cavity. So, you know, this was a big trauma in his life, and he deferred to the doctors, and he highly respected people with education and training. And the more, like my father says, the more alphabets after someone's name, the more Matthew respected them because he really valued education. He started on Lexapro around Labor Day of 2004, and um, we we were trying to piece it all together, but somewhere along the line uh, he was also prescribed Xanax because he was not sleeping, and he was very sleep-deprived. And um, things just weren't settling him. He he was ruminating at night and, and not sleeping, and he went to a psychiatrist who changed his antidepressant and um, also at the same time prescribed off-label another psychopharmacological drug that was prescribed off-label, which I have an issue with because, you know, pharmaceutical companies develop drugs for certain reasons and doctors that do things off-label are going against the pharmaceutical company's description of what the the, the drug is for. But long story short, by the beginning of November, uh, he was on three different drugs all at the same time. And he was holding up well, though. I mean, he was functioning, he was working, um, and that was solid. I mean, he was just a solid person. There, You know, we never had any issues with him. He was the last person, again, that you would ever think could take his life. He was a pillar in the community. And, you know, he did his homework, and, you know, he the holidays were coming, and his former, the girl he had broken up with was in town and had moved on into another relationship, and he just wanted to detox off all these drugs he didn't feel well we had no idea he was ideating at the time um, because if we had known we would have stepped in and put him in a local hospital but he was a, a highly had a high profile in town he was an established businessman and he was bright so he did his research and he decided he wanted to go to Arizona to the Meadows because everything he had read and researched and heard from other people was that this is the place you go. This is the best of the best. This is where the celebrities go. It's $1,000 a day. Um, you know They have all these wonderful treatment staff there and so on and so forth. And and so we were very supportive of him, and we, you know, we said, "Fine, go, take all the time you need." Um, you know, he was concerned about the cost, and we were like, "Just go and and do what you want." He wanted to learn about yoga, he wanted to learn about meditation, he wanted to get some spirituality, um, and so we supported his decision. And he flew out um, on the 24th of November, which was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Um, And I was more concerned about the flight. I I don't like to fly. He didn't like to fly. And I was worried about him getting there safely. And once I heard that he landed, I I was relieved because I felt he was in good hands. And he had said to my father the morning he left, he said, uh, quote, unquote, "Um, Dad, I probably won't be able to talk to you for a week to ten days. They're probably going to have me in detox. He wanted to get the pharmaceutical drugs out of his system and start over. Um, Skip, do you want to pick up from there?
4: Well, one of the things that I want to stress is that when he arrived at the medals that he had told the medals that he had been thinking of suicide for two weeks. and so he came in very suicidal and he told uh, the people there that he had been thinking of nine different ways of killing himself and had settled on hanging himself. And what they did was then give him or, or let him keep his belt. Uh, they left him alone, unobserved, essentially. Uh, supposedly, they checked on him one time. They had him on what's called Q4 hours, which is uh, n- no watch at all. And so, uh, and they left the door open, and he walked out the door and hung himself in the middle of the night. Um, and it brings to. What we know is that in the last four years, there have been three thousand four hundred twenty-two Americans die in Iraq. In that same period, approximately six thousand four hundred patients have died from suicide in psychiatric hospitals, mm-hmm. and that's where the rub is. And that's why uh, Denise has started this program, and uh, and I've certainly endorsed it because of the uh, it's it, if, if you're talking about life and death. It's more dangerous in a psychiatric hospital than it is in Iraq. Well,
3: Dr. Carroll, you know, the, the last phone call, you know, when my brother self-admitted uh, into the meadows, and, you know, we we did not question his choice because, again, you know, Matt was 37 and very smart and, edu- and, and educated and researched everything to the nines. Um, you know, we we all felt that he would at least be safe there. You know, you, you take your children to school and you drop them off and you expect them to at least be safe. And you, you take your children to daycare and you expect them to be safe. And, you know, your brother admits himself into a level one psychiatric acute hospital and you
2: expect him to at least be safe yes, there. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's hard enough to convince people sometimes to, who are suicidal or depressed to go to the hospital, and um, of course it's very scary and upsetting to think that uh, you know that that they're not safe there. Oftentimes, and more oftentimes, as we'll as we'll talk about when we come back, this problem is increasing, and we'll talk about why. But I also would like to talk about uh, some of the things in detail that went on in this hospital that um, are lessons for for the rest of us, for, for other hospitals and for other people sending loved ones for care. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about skyrocketing suicide. Who's to blame?
4: The Internet's premier talk radio station, voiceamerica.com.
6: Ever wonder what are the favorite travel destinations of the Hollywood jet set? Where do celebrities like to go when they aren't walking the red carpet? Tune in to Traveris Celebrity Travel Talk with president of Treveras, David Manning, and Lisa O'Hurley, golf aficionado and wife of actor John O'Hurley. On Traveras Celebrity Travel Talk, David and Lisa talk with well-known actors sports celebrities and entertainment insiders to find out about their favorite travel destinations and what they recommend
0: The Kerry Douglas Show, with the CEO of Worldwide Music Incorporated and the founder and publisher of Gospel Truth Magazine, Kerry Douglas. By tuning in weekly, you will gain insight, tips, and tools to help get your career started. From how to market yourself to distribution of your product, learn the power of faith-based marketing and much more on The Kerry Douglas Show. Join Kerry each week with guests from the gospel music industry, entrepreneurs, speakers, and authors as they discuss faith-based news, events, and trends. The Kerry Douglas the Douglas Show with Carrie Douglas, broadcasts each Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, and is brought to you by Gospel Truth Magazine and Worldwide Music Incorporated on the Voice America channel. The Cherry Douglas Show with Kerry Douglas, your premier source for faith-based entertainment, news, events, and trends. Muscular Development presents Noble Radio, bringing you the latest news, gossip, and controversy from the world of bodybuilding. Uncensored, uncompromised, and unrestrained in true MD style. Hosted by the infamous muscle mob, Larry Pepe, John Romano, and Dave Palumbo. Welcome top IFBB professional bodybuilders, industry insiders, and characters you won't find anywhere else every week. Noble Radio broadcasts each Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. If you've ever wondered what the Stern Show would sound like if Howard was a bodybuilding fan then tune in and find out noble radio uncensored uncompromised unrestrained voiceamerica.com
1: welcome back to dr carol's couch if you have a question or comment for dr carol dial toll free at 1-866-472-5788 now back to the show here's dr carol lieberman
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking about skyrocketing suicide, who's to blame, with my guest, Denise Burney-Fine, the founder of Break the Silence, and renowned suicide attorney, Skip Simpson. And we were talking about the tragic story of R. Matthew Burney, um, who was admitted to the Meadows in Arizona. And... um, where one would think that one, that one would be safe, um, and we're not. We, I, I don't think, even though yes, you did have a lawsuit against them that has settled. So we're not just talking about the Meadows. We're not really singling them out. This is just one illustrative case of, of you know, as you said, the thousands that are going on, uh, the thousands of, of hospital suicides that are going on all over this country i I do want to talk about this particular um case just just to go over step by step some of the mistakes that the hospital made, and the first one that jumps out at me is um this wasn't a locked unit no oh. this is this is not e sorry,
3: Skip, but this is not even a locked hospital um it, it, this is licensed by the state of Arizona as a level 1 psychiatric acute hospital
2: so then why when when um matt came there and told them from the get go filling out his forms, admission forms, Uh, he went there voluntarily and he filled out the forms and he said that he was suicidal uh, and had a suicide plan and he said that he had nine different ways of uh, that he was thinking of or planning to commit suicide and he settled on hanging. Certainly the first mistake, it seems to me, was the Meadows not saying, well, this is not a locked facility, we really have to transfer you somewhere that is locked,
4: Well, that's exactly right. When he came in, um, you know, the the lesson to be learned for people who have loved ones in the hospital and also for psychiatric hospitals is when he came into the hospital, as I said before, he had told them that he had been thinking about suicide at a high level for uh, a couple of weeks. They knew that right before he came to the hospital that he had actually purchased a rope and had it in his basement, and had thought about killing himself and had a suicide rehearsal plan. They knew that when, when he came there. Then the next thing, uh, that was on a Wednesday when he came in. They knew all of that. On Thursday, he uh, told them about his thinking of nine different ways of killing himself and settling on Haining. On Friday, the psychiatrist uh, uh, took did a suicide assessment and determined that he was uh, at high risk for suicide. Essentially, he said that, you know, the bottom line was that he would be at high risk for suicide, that he had been thinking about suicide all this time. So that, you know, he, and he was, uh his anxiety level was a 10 on a 10. His depression was 10 on a 10. And then inexplicably, they put him on Q4 hours, which is every four hours they would come by and check him. But at the same
3: time, but also, I I don't mean to interrupt, Skip, but during that initial assessment, uh, it was a 90-minute assessment, and by the way, um, the the Meadows didn't require any previous medical records or background information prior to admitting my brother.
2: Well, okay, but but before we even get just staying there, I mean, certainly he should have been seen by a psychiatrist um at the very beginning of his stay, not the next day. That's first of all. Second of all, he shouldn't have, uh, after he mentioned that he was, had settled on hanging in particular, they should have known to take his belt away. Um, Another point, he shouldn't have been on just Q1, that's every one hour. He, he should have been on Q15 Minutes. Um, and certainly it shouldn't have been reduced but I, I mean you know in the very first day in other words there were so many fatal mistakes that they made yes Matthew, well, Matthew was the
3: perfect storm I mean actually ev- everything lined up wrong for him there were so many opportunities for someone to intervene and change what happened but again it, they, it, there was just one ball dropped after another and uh, getting back to that assessment on Friday not only did the doctor make notations that my brother was suicidal, but um, he ordered a second opinion for suicidality while he also reduced his watch from yes. Q1 to Q4 yes. uh, with no basis. Uh, so, uh, And he never got the second opinion for suicidality because it was the weekend and my brother died Sunday morning.
2: And that's another thing that's been coming up more and more in psychiatric hospitals, you know, when it's the weekend and people don't come in on the weekends.
4: Well, everybody understands that if um, you're going in on the weekend, you're not going to get very good care at all.
2: But I mean, that's, the, it really, you know, what, what about the Hippocratic Oath? I mean, you know, weekends, that shouldn't matter if you have a patient that, I mean, a patient needs to be seen certainly within 24 hours. And when someone is suicidal and the first person at the hospital found that out, there should have been a psychiatrist there within the hour there's no excuse for that he got there wednesday and thursday was thanksgiving well it doesn't matter you know know. it it didn't matter to him i mean um you know if you're feeling suicidal you're certainly not going to be feeling better because it's thanksgiving
4: well arizona has a problem in that in most states uh you should be seen within the first 24 hours by a psychiatrist uh arizona doesn't require that Mm. they say that you it, they were within the standard of care of waiting in Arizona, hmm. uh, which is just dead wrong. Yeah. But the problem was is, is that when you put someone, individuals who are acutely suicidal are hospitalized to be in a safe environment and um, so that you can then find out what the suicidal crisis is all about. When they're in there, a hospital is on notice that a patient has suicidal tendencies and they assume the duty of safeguarding the patient from suicide. Right and uh and what the issue is is suicidal patients know how to conceal their suicidal ide intentions now matt did not do that but some will do that behind some cheerful behavior and then uh carefully prepare yeah. for the execution of their intention at a suitable moment and the the issue for hospitals is that the possibilities at the suicidal patient's command in a hospital are numerous they can hang themselves mm-hmm. on the latch of a door they can uh, do it from a protrusion of a hospital room. They can strangle themselves. All kinds of ways that they can commit suicide. And the uh, the hospital, the metals, and most places that I take their deposition, they don't realize that the number one way of dying in a hospital is by suicide. And if someone is without oxygen for four yeah. minutes, they can have severe brain damage. In six minutes, they're dead. And so, even when you have someone on Q15 minutes, Q15 minutes, now the standard is changing to it needs to be eye-to-eye, one-to-one, mm-hmm. when because you can kill yourself easily yes. in 15 in minutes. The,
2: yes, yes, and I have been involved in some cases like that, um, but you would think that that would have been the, the least, uh, you know, the, the least that they would have done, but, I think, do you think that the problem... I mean, surely somebody should have recognized in the first day... that this was not an appropriate place for him with this level of suicidality. Well, that's Why do you think that they didn't say we need to uh, transfer you in an ambulance to a locked facility? Was it because of the money, you know, losing a patient? or was it be-
4: well, what- You can certainly speculate. I think all your listeners will immediately go to the notion that is, of course, it was about money. It was $1,000 a day. They had a regulation there that, in my judgment, they violated because it said that if someone is at high risk for suicide, that they should be transferred out. If they had followed their own regulations and policies and procedures, then he would not have died. Mm -hmm. The reason why I say that is, number one, they didn't transfer him out. But if they kept him, their own standards said if he had any suicide ideation, then he should be on eye to eye.
3: Mm -hmm. And the
4: reason why is because it's an open facility. So they violate, you know, and, and I'm not... Just picking on the metals. This is across the country. You know, sixteen hundred people every de- I mean, every year die inpatient from suicide. Well, and, and, and
3: we pain. were not. We were not aware, um, and neither was Matthew that this was an open campus. In fact, if you if you look at their marketing. They, they mention nothing about it being an open campus. Mm-hmm. They talk about safety and security there, mm-hmm. um, and on their videos and in their, in their printed materials. So, you know, and, and an average layperson, when you're reading this is a level one psychiatric acute right. hospital, you're, you know, you're thinking, well, they're going to at least have an area that's locked. Yes. Now, my brother was in the acute wing of an acute care hospital which from deposition after deposition after deposition, the uh, employee was saying that, you know, this is an open campus. We don't ever lock a door. Uh, we actually have statements from employees saying that, yeah, the doors, they don't, they don't lock, and people can walk out at all hours of the morning, and we find them buying beer at the local convenience store half a mile away. People can things. walk in and people can walk out. If we had known this, and if Matt had known that, he would never have gone there.
4: Huh? Carol, one of the things that, he, as uh, Denise just said, that he was on this acute unit and he suicided on a Sunday. The people who were watching him that night, that and supposedly someone saw him uh, one time that night, but there was no one on the acute unit that night that was ever told that he was suicidal. Hmm. No one had ever read the records, even of Hmm. their own hospital. So no one knew at all that suicide was an issue for him Hmm. on that that night shift.
2: Wow, and of course that's one of the basic things that hospital staff is supposed to do. When one staff leaves, they're supposed to give a report to the staff coming on to let them know what the current status is of all the patients.
4: Exactly, and they had like 60 to 70 patients there at the time, and uh, they go through all of that whole bunch in 30 minutes. And We learned that uh, the issue of suicide was never passed on to the uh, staff
2: that night. Oh, wow, that's so sad. All right, well, we do need to take another break. We will be back. We're talking about skyrocketing suicide with my guests, Denise Bernie fine and Skip Simpson, so stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
4: The Authority and Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com
1: Live in the Green Life with Kim Carlson ecopreneur author and green living maven brings you an upbeat fun exploration of the doables of living a more earth-friendly life kim cuts through the noise and urban myth of green do's and don'ts and shows that it is possible to live green easily from hip organic weddings to exotic echo travel to healthy personal care products get the most current trends and tips from the experts for living a more planet-friendly and human lifestyle living the green life with kim carlson broadcast each thursday at noon pacific 3 p.m eastern on the voice America channel living the green life for a human healthy and planet-friendly lifestyle
5: whether by choice or by circumstance the statistics of the effects of missing fathers and the impact on our children our neighborhoods and our communities is staggering how can we interrupt this pattern of violence gang activity drug use and sexual activity among our fatherless children on changing a generation with author inspirational speaker life coach and host terence wilson The focus is on elevating the mindset of this current generation by unveiling viewpoints that inspire people to reach for their dreams. Terrence and his guests reveal how building family relationships, becoming an entrepreneur, and living a Christian life develops future leaders in the next generation of children. Changing a Generation, with Terrence Wilson, broadcasts each Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. Changing a Generation, bringing a message of deliverance to the fatherless on Newstalk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Muscular Development presents Noble Radio, bringing you the latest news, gossip, and controversy from the world of bodybuilding. Uncensored, uncompromised, and unrestrained in true MD style. Hosted by the infamous muscle mob, Larry Pepe, John Romano, and Dave Palumbo. Welcome top IFBB professional bodybuilders, industry insiders, and characters you won't find anywhere else every week. Noble Radio broadcasts each Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. If you've ever wondered what the Stern show would sound like, if Howard was a bodybuilding fan then tune in and find out noble radio uncensored uncompromised unrestrained
1: voiceamerica.com welcome back to dr carol's couch if you have a question or comment for dr carol dial toll free at 1-866-472-5788 now back to the show here's dr
0: carol lieberman
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking about skyrocketing suicide today, who's to blame, with renowned suicide attorney Skip Simpson and Denise Bernie Fine, the founder of Break the Silence. And we're talking about her brother's uh, tragic story uh, in a psychiatric hospital and the emergence of more and more cases like this. And, Denise, off the air, you were talking about how you found out that your brother suicided.
3: Um, it's a phone call and news that you just are never prepared for. Um, I was actually, uh, I, I lived out of town, and I had told my brother that while he was in Arizona, I would go home and, and tend to my mother over the weekend for him, get her ready for the winter. And I was out shopping with my mom, uh, buying her some winter clothing. And a girlfriend of mine called me on my cell phone and said, Where are you? And I said, Well, I'm at the mall with Mom. And she said, I'll be right down. Well, little did I know that my husband had gotten a phone call from the hospital saying that there had been a tragic accident hmm. um and that my brother had suicided. So he called a girlfriend of mine to find me. And she actually tracked me down about 20 minutes later in the middle of a department store. And, of course, I had never received any kind of news like this in my life before. And she actually came running towards me all pale and shaking, and I thought something was wrong with her. Mm. And I said to her, uh, Michelle, what's wrong? And she said to me, Denise, Matthew committed suicide. I'm sorry. It still hit, oh, it no. still hurts. And uh, I looked at her, and I didn't react. I, I looked at her, and I said, no, no, Mickey, that's not possible. He's in the hospital. Mm. And she said, no, Denise, he did it in the hospital. And the rest is a blur. Um, it, it, it just, uh, my life went, went basically to hell in a handbag that day, pardon my English, but um, it's it's been a horrible two and a half years, very emotionally painful. My parents um, are tremendously strong. I don't know what keeps them going every day, but it's the last phone call you would ever expect to get when someone's in a hospital. You just assume that at least they're going to be safe.
2: And so that's what motivated you to start your organization well, what
3: motivated me was after I found Skip. Um, Skip and I kind of bonded pretty quickly. Um, and yeah, I just started to become educated about how how often this happens and um, some stories and uh, of, you know, other inpatient suicides that were, were very preventable. And then I started doing my own investigating about standards in Arizona and licensing issues and credentialing. And uh, I adored my brother. Uh, he was my baby brother. And... Um, he 'd be doing this for me if if the situation were reversed and i just I just cannot allow him to have died in vain it It's as simple as that there are very simple remedies to this um we need to draw attention not only to inpatient safety but to suicide in general and that that's one of my underlying missions is that you know, suicide is out there, and if you check my website, which is www.break-the-silence.org, you know, when you're a suicide survivor, suicide is the pink elephant that you do carry around with you that people see but nobody wants to talk about, um, and it's pervasive. It's amazing how many people's lives are touched by suicide. So. You know, it's the illiteracy and the HIV and the cancer of 30, 40 years ago. I I think we really need to break the silence. We really need to start talking about this as a mental health issue with all the stress and anxiety and pressure in our lives and expectations. You know, Mm -hmm. I I think we're just all kind of vulnerable, and and suicide does happen to anybody and any family at any time. I mean, this is the last place I ever thought I'd be.
4: Actually, there's 86 people every day that, commit suicide, and at the end of the year, that usually has been totaling to around 30000 a year.
3: Yes, and there's and, more people
4: and, that die from suicide than, than die from murder or from AIDS every year.
2: Yes, and, and your statistic also that makes it one every 16 minutes, so during the time of this show, there will have been four people who suicided, and what, about, um, I guess... I guess, well, probably less than, I guess it would be point something, but um, uh, too much, too big a fraction would be in a psychiatric hospital. Well, you know, if 87 pets a day were dying from tainted
3: pet Mm. food, the government, first of all, the public would be in an uproar, and the government would be working on trying to address the situation. And we're talking, you know, with suicide, there's so many misconceptions. People believe that, you know, that people have choices and, and that 's how they elected to die and, and, and that there 's nothing you can do uh to change their minds and you know to me, suicide is a final act of desperation and hopelessness, yes, and my brother wanted my brother went out there to the meadows with the last bit of hope he had,
2: yes, and, and he did
3: not go out there to die
2: yes, and I think that that 's an important point to make that when people are feeling suicidal they are feeling desperate and hopeless, but this is part of their depression. And if you take care of the depression through psychotherapy and, medic- and, and oftentimes medication and other kinds of uh, green nature, and there's a whole bunch of different modalities now, but certainly at the very least psychotherapy, then the person feels differently. Skip, you wanted to give people uh, sort of a consumer's guide to how they can make sure that this doesn't happen to their relatives?
4: Yeah, I think the first thing that you'd want to do is to ensure that patient confidentiality is waived uh in the very beginning and and get your loved one to to let the hospital know that you, they want you to be a part of the treatment team and so that the there's no um hindrance in the hospital talking to to the loved ones you need to find out what observation level your loved one will be on and tell the staff your concern with anything that's more than uh checks more than uh every five minutes. If there's anything more than five minutes, tell them you have a real concern about that and tell them why. Leave a note uh, at the hospital and ask that be made part of the hospital record about your concerns if an observation level is greater than five minutes. Make sure you, your loved one is not discharged without your knowledge. That is a big issue. Make sure that you understand the aftercare plan, that when the per- your loved one is discharged from the hospital, you know what is he safe? Make sure that you find out if he's safe and what makes you think he's safe and make sure that there's continuity in care that is when he's discharged from or she 's discharged from the hospital that they are then going to outpatient care and they're seen on a very frequent basis until the suicidal crisis is is over with and uh If anyone wants to know any more about uh all these issues, they can uh, look at www.suicidelawyers.com, and there's a book there that they can purchase that outlines all this stuff on suicide.
2: Could you give that website address again?
4: It's www.suicidelawyers.com, or they can call one 800 247 six five five three to uh, get that book.
2: Okay, and also the organization that Denise founded, the website is breakthesilence.org, but it's break dash the dash silence org. Yes, correct. Thank and you Denise both
4: is, uh, Denise is my one of my heroes.
2: Oh okay. thank She's, you.
4: She's uh, doing a great job to uh, to break the silence.
2: Well, you both really are, and this is something that is unfortunately growing every day. And we do need to uh, take responsibility for it. Each person needs to do what they can. But it's absolutely true. If you have a loved one who's feeling depressed, um, you know you certainly shouldn't be put off from seeing a psychiatrist, getting psychotherapy, getting medication, which is antidepressants, which are often, uh, and sometimes other medications as well, which are often needed and going to a psychiatric hospital, but making sure that they know that you're watching them, that they know that you're not going to just accept um, the level of observation that they're putting your loved one on, because uh, at least if you bring that to their attention, they'll be a little more concerned about their liability. So exactly. it's unfortunate that you have to pay attention this closely, but yes, it's true that, uh, that that's the, the state of... of the way the hospitals are run these days. Um, And a lot of it has to do with money. A lot of it has to do with wanting to attract a certain clientele that wouldn't come to a hospital like that if it was locked. You know, that's a big issue, too. Um, So all these things, you just need to pay attention and make sure they know that you're watching. Again, I'd like to thank my guests, Denise Bernie Fine, the founder of Break the Silence, and Skip Simpson, a renowned suicide attorney. So thank you both, and thank you all for listening You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch.
0: Join us next
1: week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr.
0: Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.
4: The Powerhouse